The following is a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church. We are continuing, as you heard in our series, walking through the Gospel of Mark. We've called it Father the Son. I do hope that your Christmas was enjoyable and meaningful. I mean, I know Christmas is, for many of you is a time where you have to work hard and to clean and to cook um, and to have everything ready for family celebrations. So I hope that if, if that was the case for you, you've been able to slow down since that time. You know, one of the things that has always stood out to me about this time of year is homecomings. Christmas is a time when many Jamaicans who are living outside of Jamaica, uh, who are maybe studying outside of Jamaica, whether in foreign, abroad, or overseas, and of course those are different places, as you know. You know that's, not, that's not one region, that's foreign, abroad, overseas. Uh, they come back to visit. But when I was a little boy growing up in church, this, was, this would be the time when you'd meet Sister White's big son who lived in foreign, as compared to brother, brother Grant's son who live abroad. And then as I got older, it would be some of my own friends who had gone off to study in university or who, or who maybe had migrated and had been working uh, in the States or the UK for a while who would come back. But what was consistent was that the family was always delighted to have their relatives back. I know some are here with us today. And to show them off to the whole church community and to talk about what they were doing and how they were doing to whoever would listen. And it really was such a warm and welcoming aspect of Christmas time. In our passage today, in Mark chapter 6, verses 1 to 6a, Jesus comes home. Now, I'm not positioning this as a Christmas homecoming. We have no idea what time of year it was. But Jesus has been up to a lot since he left his home. The hometown boy has built celebrity status in the towns around Galilee. I mean, surely he's going to receive a hero's welcome. Surely his family will want to show him off to the neighbors. I mean, surely those who've known him since his youth will be delighted to see him and eager to hear from him. And it seems for a moment like that was going to happen. But that's not how this story plays out. This will not be a triumphant homecoming. After the highs of the sequence of spectacular miracles that we've been seeing through, from the end of chapter 4 throughout chapter 5, Mark brings us back down to ground with a bump. And here's what we want to think about even as we read this passage. Those of us who follow King Jesus need to have our expectations shaped by this passage. It's an important reminder because if we live as Jesus' disciples, we will inevitably experience what he has experienced. So let's read Mark 6, 1 to 6a. This is God's holy word revealing to us Christ. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, 
except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. If we're going to come to grips with what's going on in Jesus' hometown, we need to take stock of where we are in this story as a whole. Most commentators count this passage as the last one in a section which began in chapter 3, verse 7, which describes Jesus' further ministry in the area of Galilee. This section has included Jesus' growing popularity, the calling of the twelve apostles, and Jesus' conflict with religious authorities and with his own family. His teaching in parables frames what's going on in terms of the kingdom of God, as insiders receive Jesus and outsiders reject him. But who falls into which group is often surprising. Most recently, in the last three weeks, we've seen Jesus' kingly rule over natural disasters, over massive demonic oppression, over chronic disease, and even over death. Jesus seems to be gathering momentum. James Edward notes that there's a change in tone at this point in Mark's story. It's the literary equivalent of when the music, musical score of a movie changes and becomes more ominous in, anticipa- in, an, in anticipation of something bad happening. Jesus' homecoming is anything but welcoming and triumphant. But the rejection he experiences there is not an isolated incident. It telegraphs what's coming next and what's coming later in this story. We're going to walk our way through this short story using four subtitles to anchor us. The first is Jesus' return. Then we're going to talk about the town's response. Then we'll look at Jesus' reply. And then finally we'll look at the result. So first then, Jesus' return. Look with me in your Bibles at verse 1 again. Our story picks up right where it left off. There is where Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. Now it may have been Capernaum, which was Jesus' base of operations during his season of ministry in Galilee, but if not, it was a nearby town on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. There was where the crowds were clamoring for Jesus, longing to be around this intriguing teacher and this worker of miracles. But now he's left there, and he's headed home. Mark doesn't actually mention Nazareth by name, but in chapter 1, verse 9, when we first introduced Jesus in the narrative, we read, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. A number of times throughout this gospel, he's called Jesus of Nazareth. So undoubtedly, that's the hometown that Mark is referring to. Nazareth was about 25 miles or 40 kilometers southwest of Capernaum. I mean, that's not a tremendous distance, even in the days when people walked everywhere. It's about the same distance between Spanish Town and Maypen. There was a major trade route that would take you from the vicinity of Capernaum towards Nazareth. And you could walk the distance in a day, but you'd be walking for much of the day. When I read Edward's description of the journey in his commentary, which led through the break in the precipitous cliffs of Arbel and up to the horns of Hattin, I couldn't help but picture the walking scenes in the first Lord of the Rings movie. But why is Jesus heading home? Mark doesn't actually give us a reason. But what we've seen throughout this gospel is that Jesus is on a mission and is deliberate about where he goes. If you read the rest of chapter 6, there's no sense that he was passing through Nazareth on the way somewhere else. He was there intentionally. 
Jesus had left Nazareth by himself, a nobody from this nobody town. But now he returns as a rabbi, a teacher of growing renown, with his entourage of disciples. And in Nazareth, he does what he's been doing in other towns. On the Sabbath day, which was the Jewish day of worship, he went into the synagogue, the local worship center, and began to teach. It was customary for synagogue leaders to invite any qualified male, but especially visiting rabbis, to speak and to expound on the reading of what we consider to be the Old Testament scriptures. And this particular visiting rabbi was no stranger. In the lead up to that day, everyone in Nazareth would have known who would be speaking on Saturday coming. You see, Jesus' reputation had preceded him home. We know that the news of him had reached there for several reasons. You might recall if you've been tracking with us through, through this series that uh, the news of him was spreading all over the region and far and wide. And of course, Jesus, what Jesus was doing was not normal for that day any more than it would be normal for this day. So his words and deeds were attracting a large following from as far south as Jerusalem, which is much further from Capernaum than Nazareth was. We also saw, that, we also saw in chapter 3 that when Jesus' family heard of the intensity of the ministry demands on him, they came to get him under control. Based on how this text in chapter 6 reads, it's very likely that his family was still living in Nazareth and were hearing the news about Jesus repeated there. Yo, you hear the latest? And they tell the stories of healings and exorcisms and verbal battles with the Pharisees. Jesus? Oh, Jesus did that? And now he was home. We don't know what Jesus said specifically that day in the synagogue, but we have a very good general sense. It would have been the same message that he had been proclaiming from the beginning of his ministry. Jesus told the people of his hometown that the time of waiting for God was over. God was on the move. God's kingdom was being established here and now. He told them to turn from their sins, to turn to God and to believe the good news. This good news is what Jesus preached everywhere he went. But how would those who knew him from when he was a little youth a walk and a kickstone receive his teaching? How would they receive him? Well, let's see. Let's look at the town's response. This is our second subtitle. Look with me in your Bibles at the latter part of verse 2. It says, And many who heard him were astonished. The language Mark uses here to describe the scene is strikingly similar to the first description of Jesus teaching in a synagogue. This is chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. No, here in Nazareth, they are amazed by when, when they hear Jesus also. Surely they heard the authority in his teaching as he spoke as the author of the scriptures themselves. But remember, Nazareth was his hometown. They had watched Jesus grow up among them. It's like us watching any of these kids run around and then years later they come back and they start to speak with authority. You see, they had never seen this Jesus. And now that they've heard Jesus for themselves, in addition to all that they had been hearing about him, they have questions. They are astonished. They are amazed. They are puzzled. Look at the questions they're asking in your Bible. Where? Where? 
what? How? They're questioning the source of his teachings, wisdom and power. The power that was obvious based on the stories they were hearing about the mighty works he had done around Galilee. I mean, and that seems reasonable, doesn't it? But it's the last two questions in particular that are revealing. Look at verse 3. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? No, what they're asking is who? More specifically, who does he think he is? What the townspeople are saying in those two questions is, we know you. You're a carpenter. That word is a general one for craftsman who, who builds with metal or wood or stone. And apparently there's good reason to suspect that Jesus may primarily have been a stonemason. There was an abundant supply of stone in the area and not a lot of wood. And in Jesus' youth, there was a nearby city that the Romans were rebuilding. So it's possible that Jesus may have even worked on that project while he was growing up. Now, among the Gentile audience for Mark's gospel, the idea that Jesus was a craftsman would have been degrading. Common laborers were regarded as uneducated and unsophisticated. So it's paradoxical that Mark would introduce Jesus as a king at the beginning of his gospel and then reveal that he was a common laborer. But among the Jews, working with your hands was a noble way to make a living. So the people of Nazareth, in pointing out Jesus' former profession, were not looking down on Jesus. They were looking across at him. It's like they were saying, you didn't go to some big shot rabbi school in Jerusalem. You, you learned your trade right here and you worked with your hands just like the rest of us. You are no better than any of us. They were saying, we know your mother and we know your brothers by name. It's probable that Mary, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon still lived in Nazareth. When you hear how Jesus responds to the town in the next verse, it's even probable that his relatives were right there in the synagogue that day. Commentators think that the way that G the, the, the text refers to Jesus' sisters, the way they spoke about them, uh, means that they had married and they were still living in Nazareth. After Nathan married Tim's sister, I'm to come back, yes, sir, and go on like say. Brother, we know you. We come from far. And Mark tells us that they took offense at him. They were scandalized by him. Edwards points out that every time Mark uses this particular word, it speaks of obstructions that prevent one from coming to faith and following Jesus. So their response to him was a serious issue. Every Christmas, we celebrate Jesus' incarnation, that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. God came in flesh in very humble circumstances. Jesus was truly human. He had a history and relatives and a humble former profession. Yet those who knew him the longest could not see beyond this to his true identity, veiled in flesh. They dismissed Jesus' message and rejected him. I mean, who did he think he was? Wasn't he just a poor, common man, just like them? Strauss comments, They cannot believe that one of their own, a lowly carpenter from the backwater village of Nazareth, could be God's agent of salvation. Jesus didn't descend from the clouds like a superhero, swooping in to save his people. Yet, how he came was essential to why he came. 
We could only be saved by someone who was fully human and fully God, able to truly represent us and to die in our place, yet to overcome death itself on our behalf. Mark is presenting such a savior to us. This is not just what we have to believe as we come to faith in Jesus. It's what we believe as we walk with him. That he is able to identify with us in our humanity and our struggle and to do something about our situation. Ultimately, we sang this morning of our, 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 our overriding hope that he fixes everything by his return. But you see, it's important for us to hear in this text the fact that Jesus understands how it feels to be rejected. I mean, often when you're going through an experience of rejection, sometimes you're you're surrounded by people who don't quite get it. And then sometimes in our trying to help each other, we try to minimize everybody's experience. So I said, look, it's not so bad. You know, what you're going through, you can manage it. And sometimes you just, you struggle because you don't feel like anyone can identify with your experience. So if you have struggled or are struggling with rejection, Jesus is able to come near to you in that experience. But he's able to do more than empathize. Isaiah 53 verse 3a prophesied about him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And the context here is how this suffering servant was working out our redemption. The rejection that Jesus experienced in his hometown was a precursor to the rejection he'd eventually experience in Jerusalem. And it was part and parcel of his work of salvation. He bore this rejection in his hometown so that we could be welcomed into his kingdom. Others may reject us, but because of Jesus, in Jesus, God will not. So how did Jesus respond to the scorn of his townspeople? Well, he responded with a proverb. Let's look at Jesus' reply. So look with me at verse 4. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. The saying that Jesus used was actually a common one, and it had equivalents in both Jewish and Greco-Roman culture. And in the, and in this, in the secular parallels, it would speak of doctors or philosophers who weren't honored in their homelands. A similar idea has carried forward in Western culture. Familiarity breeds contempt. In his reply, Jesus doesn't protest their rejection of him. But he explains it, and in doing so, he indicts them for it. They had asked, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? He didn't contradict them. Instead, he spoke to the fact that he was so much more than what they knew him to be. This is the only place in Mark's gospel where Jesus refers to himself as a prophet. And he's definitely not implying that that's all he was. What he was doing was explaining the rejection he was experiencing in Nazareth by identifying himself with the prophets of old in Israel. Prophets spoke on behalf of God, calling God's people to repentance. Jesus was doing the same. The prophets of old were rejected by the people and many of them were killed. There had been no prophet for several hundred years before John the Baptist, who was Jesus' forerunner. We met him in chapter 1, but in a few verses, Mark is going to tell us what happened to him. And there are no prizes for guessing. We read Jesus' story knowing where it's going. And that was probably true also for the majority of Mark's original audience, who would have heard at least bits and pieces about Jesus, and likely about his death. 
But Mark is preparing his readers for where this narrative is going. Jesus' quotation of this proverb is disturbing and ominous. In the Old Testament, rejection of the prophets often preceded judgment. So these townsfolk are in a really dangerous place. Pay close attention to what Jesus says here. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. His saying is a bit like a dartboard or better yet like a crosshairs with concentric circles. In his hometown, among his relatives, in his own household. Think about this. Jesus probably had cousins in that synagogue in Nazareth that day. Maybe even an aunt or uncle. But the people who are most guilty are the ones who are closest to him. His own household. We don't know with absolute certainty that they were in Nazareth that day. But based on this, that would seem to be the case. And we know already that they had rejected him. They thought that he was crazy and they came to Capernaum in chapter 3 to restrain him. There's no evidence that their perspective had changed at this point. It's important though to recognize that Jesus is not rejecting his family or the people of Nazareth. We know from the other gospel accounts that Jesus' mother Mary came to believe in him while he was still alive. In the book of Acts, we learn that James, Jesus' younger brother, also came to faith in him and became a prominent leader in the church in Jerusalem. He would go on to author the New Testament letter that goes by that name. Jude, the New Testament author, was another brother of Jesus who came to believe in him. He's called Judas in this text. There's hope even for those who seem immovable in their unbelief. But think about what this text as a whole would have meant to Mark's original audience. Christianity was spreading quickly, but it was not widely accepted by the surrounding culture. Whether they were Jews or Gentiles, many of those who had come to faith in Jesus would have been misunderstood and rejected by their countrymen, neighbors, and even by family members. This story would help them to understand their own experiences as those who followed the king who was rejected by his own town. Later in the gospel, Jesus will make it clear that following him is costly, that it requires the willingness to give up close and precious relationships for his sake. So what seems like an aside in verse 1 is actually an important detail. The disciples followed Jesus to Nazareth. I mean, I wonder what they were expecting. Maybe they were expecting adulation and excitement, like when Usain Bolt goes home to Sherwood Content, or if Kamala Harris were to visit Brownstone, the birthplace of her father. But instead, what they, what they experienced was sharing in Jesus' rejection. I mean, imagine the looks that they all got after that synagogue meeting as they walked around town, where people would just kind of look at them with disgust and shake their heads and mutter things that they couldn't quite hear but could hear just enough of. And look at verse 7, which follows this passage. Jesus is about to send these disciples out on a mission of their own to announce the kingdom. Surely, they should expect both the highs and the lows of being associated with Jesus. And wouldn't that apply to us also as Jesus' disciples? If we identify with him, if we follow in his footsteps, if we are on his mission, we should expect that we will experience much of the same. The rejection that Jesus experienced in Nazareth was not without consequence. This is our fourth and final subheading, the result. So look with me at verse 5 and the first half of verse 6. 
And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. These verses are difficult to fathom, much less to explain. He could do no mighty work there. This is the same Jesus who has been healing all kinds of diseases and still the storm and has even raised a little girl from the dead. He could do no mighty work there. We now understand that the gospel writer Matthew wrote his account of Jesus using Mark's gospel as source material. And it seems that he too may have been concerned about such language implying the limitation of Jesus' power. Because when he tells this story, he says, and he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. I mean, that's much more palatable. But we're not preaching Matthew right now. So what should we make of this? Does unbelief tie Jesus' hands? Is he unable to act with divine power under these circumstances? Evidently not. Mark's exception is hilarious when you think about it. What seems like a failure would, would be considered by most a massive success under most circumstances. He laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. I mean, I personally would sign up for that kind of failure. But what Mark says emphasizes the tragedy of the circumstances. Think for a moment, think back on what Jesus has been doing in his ministry up to now. I mean, he's literally been walking around and if people touched the hem of his garment, they were healed. He's been healing everyone up and down the Galilean countryside. Nazareth was a small town. Based on the archaeological findings, they suspect no more than 500 people would have lived there. I mean, some of us went to prep schools that were probably around that size. And you, you know how familiar you are in that setting. So Jesus was walking among people whom he knew well. Surely many more of them needed healing and deliverance. As William Lane says, unbelief excluded the people of Nazareth from the dynamic disclosure of God's grace that others had experienced. Think back on the stories which precede this one. In both the case of the woman with the bleeding issue and Jairus with, with his dead daughter, Jesus had been working miracles in response to faith. The implication is that Jesus' miracles were not parlatrix. They served a particular purpose in his ministry. Miracles were meant to take people from faith to faith. They were more than an expression of compassion. They were intended to reveal God's overflowing grace, to speak to the nature and nearness of the kingdom of God, and to spotlight Jesus as God's chosen king. So it seems that Mark is using couldn't the way an actor, who is quite particular, might say, I, I can't work under these circumstances, without implying, implying that Jesus was a diva, of course. Based on why he came and what his miracles meant, it was unthinkable to Jesus to display his power in these circumstances. That's the sense in which he was constrained and not free to do the miraculous in Nazareth. And the accent here at the end of this passage is on the people's refusal to believe. That's what Mark means for us to find truly remarkable, even as Jesus himself marvels at it. No, it's, it's funny. A lot of people throughout this gospel have been marveling at Jesus up to this point. But now it is Jesus himself who is amazed in the face of such outright and obstinate unbelief. It should amaze us that at this point in this story, there's a Gentile man who was formerly possessed by a legion of demons who is spreading the news of what Jesus had done for him around a region of ten cities while the people in Jesus' hometown reject him. 
Strauss hits the nail on the head. Those who should be most responsive to Jesus' kingdom proclamation are in fact the most resistant to it. One of the fears that can afflict many Christians is that our doubts will disqualify us from receiving from God. And it's, it's commonly taught by people that that's how it works. And sometimes we look at a passage like this and think that those fears are justified. But later in Mark, we'll see Jesus deliver the son of a man who admits his struggle to trust Jesus. And that's not what this passage is about. The folks in Nazareth are not battling or, 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 or succumbing to their doubts. Remember, they are actually quite convinced that Jesus is able to work miracles. They simply refuse to believe in him. That recognition can help us to understand something important about the nature of faith and unbelief. And the commentator Edwards captures it well. The greatest obstacle to faith is not the failure of God to act, but the unwillingness of the human heart to accept the God who condescends to us in only a carpenter, the son of Mary. Here on this, the last Sunday of an eventful year, we've come to the end of this subsection in the Gospel of Mark. The kingdom is advancing. The king is revealing his authority and rescuing the suffering. But he's also being rejected by some we'd expect to receive him gladly. This surprising and sobering account is meant to fix this fact in our minds. The king we're called to follow was rejected even in his hometown. Behold your king. See him dishonored. This is the king we follow. And his experience should shape our expectations as we follow him. Soon in this gospel, we will be called as his disciples to shoulder our own cross and follow him. But Mark is working hard to ensure that when we hear that call, we are not surprised that following Jesus should involve all kinds of sufferings, including rejection. Ultimately, his rejection would be integral to our redemption. If you are a believer, then what Jesus suffered here in Nazareth, he suffered for you. This episode was a necessary part of his journey to the final rejection that he would experience in Jerusalem, culminating in his death on a cross. Rejection will not frustrate the purposes of the kingdom. It will advance despite and even through rejection. For Jesus and for all who follow him, the road of rejection ultimately leads to glory. We sang that this morning. We sang of his return and the fact that kings and kingdoms will bow down to him. And on that day, the king who was rejected in Nazareth will welcome all those who believe in him. The rejects of this world, those who have lived as aliens and strangers into his true heavenly home forever. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. You have just listened to a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church.